this is actually the first time uh, that I've come to SMAC 1, actually. Um, I'm from the ACA congregation, and before that uh, I was in SMAC 2. Uh, but this week I'm, I'm filling in for Andrew as he uh, preaches at another conference in Singapore. Um, well, uh, a bit about myself. Uh, it's good that I can, can meet some of you this morning. A bit about myself. Um, if you're wondering about my accent, um, I am actually Australian, um, though... Uh, I am married, I'm married to, to Shirley, my wife. Uh, she is Malaysian, and uh, we, we've been in KL since the beginning of this year. Um, my parents are actually from KL itself as well, but uh, I grew up in Australia. But anyway, um, so today I'm going to speak on 2 John, a passage that was read this morning. Um, as you listen to it, it would be good for you to keep your Bibles open uh, so that you can weigh up uh, what I say against what the Bible says. Uh, in the end, it's not by my own authority that I speak, but by God's word. Uh, so as we begin, uh, let, me, let us pray. Dear God, we, we thank you that you have given us your word. Father, we pray that you would humble our hearts, uh, that we would be ready to listen to you, uh, that we would submit ourselves to your will, uh, that we would be obedient and, and loving to others also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at 2 John, uh, the background to the letter uh, is that it's written by a man who refers to himself as the Elder. Um, and we, we understand him to be the Apostle John. And he's writing to uh, a certain elect lady and her children. Um, though we don't know exactly who she is. Um, commentaries will uh, debate about uh, whether she is an actual lady or, or a, ch- a local church community. Um, in the end, um, well, I think it's referring to a local church, but in the end, I don't think it's particularly important that we have a, a definite conclusion on that because I don't think uh, it would uh, affect the way that we would actually apply the passage. But, uh, now, 2 John begins with some words of love. And before I actually uh, really begin to speak about uh, uh, on this passage, um, to speak about love makes me a little bit nervous because I don't claim to be an expert on love. Um, To give you an idea of what I mean, I thought I'd share with you a story that happened to me last year. Um, I had a friend who decided that that he wanted to take Christian love seriously. And so so one day he he came to me and and he said, "Um, Brother... I love you. And we didn't, uh, at that point, embrace and, uh, and express our love for one another. I was a bit taken aback. Um, I would have been satisfied if, if we just grunted at each other and, and, and gave each other high fives. But I reciprocated and I said, Brother, I love you too. Um, and we then just gave each other this smile that said, well, we get the point, but let's not say such things to each other again. Um, well, anyway, um, John begins by speaking about love. But it's not just love, but love and love in truth. Uh, so my, fir- my first point is that love and truth belong together. So let's have a look at a few verses from the beginning, uh, verses 1 to 5. Uh, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. 
Grace, mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment but, what, but the one we've had from the beginning that we love one another. So who is it that he loves? It is all who know uh, the truth and it's because of the truth that abides in us. Um, It's as though anyone who meets who says that he is a Christian who believes in the truth, John will embrace uh, and express his love for them. Now at the same time, um, it says that his love isn't based on a whole lot of other things. Um, His love isn't because he likes the personality of that person such that he can get along really well. Um, It isn't because he can gain something from the relationship. Um, It doesn't depend on whether he personally knows the person. Um, It is simply because of this common belief in the truth that draws him into loving fellowship with others. So the truth was the basis for his love. And we mustn't separate this love and truth. Though sometimes um, we may have a, a tendency... Uh, to emphasise perhaps the truth and neglect love or sometimes uh, emphasise love and neglect truth. So let me tell you a tale of two churches. Um, The first church was very much concerned about uh, the truth. Uh, The members made God's word a high priority and everyone was well grounded in sound doctrine. They worked hard to ensure that their understanding of God's word was correct Uh, such that they would relate to him correctly and appropriately. But this church lacks love. Their knowledge made them arrogant. Uh, Visitors who come to join a Bible study would be made to feel alienated, uh, even victimised, because they believed in something different or their knowledge uh, wasn't as as big. Um, If anyone sensed any hint of heresy from anyone, they would immediately pounce on the person and judge and condemn the person. It was cold and harsh in its treatment of people. Now the second church was very much a loving church. If you were a part of that church, you'd feel cared for. It was a very warm community. Anyone who visited was made to feel welcome and that they could fit in and belong. But this church lacked truth. To them, love was the most important thing. All you need is love. But it meant that what they believed in was no longer important. They would welcome any belief, as long as you mentioned God, and soon enough, the church was more about making uh, people feel good about themselves and each other, rather than about uh, glorifying God. So one church emphasised love, the other emphasised truth, But both were lacking. Love and truth go together and we mustn't separate them. And what about you? Are you someone who emphasises love or more on truth? Now, I suspect that most of us would probably emphasise more on love. Um, One reason may be that we just want to be decent people. Um, Another reason is that we live in an age which... uh, believes that there is no such thing as an absolute truth. Um, In the past, when cultures came together, um, there were wars over what they believed. 
but now the attitude is tolerance is, is the thing that's most important. Um, everyone can believe whatever they want. You can have your version of the truth, I can have my version of the truth. They could be contradicting each other, but at the same time they're both correct. So, when Christians assert that they believe in the truth, it goes against the grain of society and then will be branded as closed-minded fundamentalists. And so, we're intimidated into just going along with the flow, like everyone else. So it means that our speech is always PC. It's politically correct. We never say that someone else's beliefs are wrong, but we always acknowledge the good things about their beliefs. We might talk even about how good it is that they have their beliefs, and we never ever mention words such as hell or damnation or judgment because such things are just too uncomfortable. And I'm sure that even now, as I mentioned, the word just feels uncomfortable. And this sort of thing has an appearance of being loving because we don't want to offend people and we want to keep the peace. But it's not a love that is based on the truth. Now, as Christians, we believe in an absolute truth. And it leaves no room for being wishy-washy. And it's a message that can save us, and from them, from, from God's judgment. In the long run, it's actually more loving to tell them the truth of the gospel for their own sake, even at the risk of offending someone. And in that sense, you can't actually have love without the truth. Uh, love and truth come together, and when you neglect one, you actually uh, lose the other. Now, the rest of the passage tells us what it means to walk in love and truth. So, firstly, what is it to love? Now, the passage tells us that to walk in love is to obey the commandments. Have a look at verse 5 and 6. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Now, this might sound a bit strange, uh, that love is obedience, um, because I think generally we think of commands as being rigid and would restrict love rather than being an expression of love. So how do we obey a command to love? It doesn't seem to be the sort of thing that you can just command. I mean, if, if I love a person, then I'll just love a person. And, and if I hate a person, then I'll just hate him. I, it's, that's just the way I feel. I can't really help it. But the problem here is that we think of love in terms of an emotion. But here John is defining love as walking according to the truth, uh, walking according to God's commandments. In other words, he's defining love in terms of action and obedience. Now next, the two verses here explain what it means to love in what looks like a circular argument. Um, He tells us that the command we're to obey is to love and the way we're to love is to obey the commands. So let me explain that a bit. Now firstly, the command to love is the command which we have had since the beginning. That's referring to how it was Jesus who gave the command and and he tells, um, uh, which, isn't, which is particularly recorded in John 13. So coming up on the screen, 
Um, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So in 2 John, even though John is giving this command, he's saying that it's not from himself, but it was a command from Jesus, uh, which we've had since then, and which we continue to uphold. But why does he say that to love is to obey the commandments? Well, it's not actually a circular argument here. Um, Notice that when he defines love, it is to walk according to the commandments, in plural. And so, Romans 13, in the next slide, may also help us here. So it says, uh, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So he's given us a few examples from the Ten Commandments, but when he says that love fulfills the law, he's saying that the command to love is basically a summary of all of God's commands. He's not saying that the commandments of the Old Testament are no longer valid or irrelevant, but that obedience to the commandments in the end, are different expressions of love. So if we're to pursue love, then the way we do that is to seek to obey God's commands. But perhaps we'll recoil at the idea of love as obedience to commands, because we associate commands with being uh, with legalistic rules and red tape. It's like turning the commands into a checklist um, that you use to make sure that you have all your obligations covered. So, uh, the law says, I haven't gossiped today, tick. I haven't stolen anything today, tick. I haven't murdered anyone today, tick. You see, the whole problem with legalism is that it's a minimalist approach to the commands. So, for example, if you hate someone, well, according to the law, you shouldn't murder them, so you won't, but then again, you won't exactly help them either. You just keep your distance and ignore them, have nothing to do with them. So you're basically following the letter of the law, but the whole point of the law is that you love, but you, but you miss that whole point. Legalism is not obedience. It has the appearance of obedience, but really at the heart of it is the desire to do as little as possible and to get away with whatever you can. Now, to think of love in terms of of obedience to commands is to realise that love isn't just whatever you think it is. Sometimes we have a warped sense of love. You only need to think of of stalkers or hippies who talk about free love, dude. Um, At times, our sense of love falls short of what, uh, what what God defines it as. And it should be God who tells us how we should love. and and hence his commands. So one particular area that I'll talk about, uh, though there could be plenty of others, um, is that of um, sex. Sexual immorality is when you engage in sexual relationship with someone you aren't married to. And the Bible clearly commands us, do not do it. It's not that sex is dirty or unspiritual or bad, but it's only good in the right context within the security of a married relationship. 
for those of us who are married, well, our consciences, consciences will normally tell us that adultery is wrong anyway. But then that just means that people will do it in secret. How far can you go before you're actually in adultery? Is it just a matter of, getting, uh, of not getting caught? Well, that's just legalism. If you're flirting around with someone who's not your wife, if you dress up a bit, little more nicely when you know you'll see that man today, if you're spending a lot of time with that person at work that you, that you seem to get along with and you, and you like, well, you're just playing around with fire. Well, that is the point, to actually stop it, to put the brakes on. Because it is a very small step before you actually are right in the heat of it. And at that point, it's just too late. So don't even entertain it. As for unmarried couples, even if you think you intend to get married, sex before marriage is still sexual immorality. If you can't stop yourselves from committing sexual immorality before you're married, how can you be sure that that you'll remain faithful after you are married? Then maybe the question of whether the guy is just with you because he wants to get laid. There is always the possibility that you will break up because you haven't committed yourselves uh, to an exclusive uh, relationship yet. You don't know what will happen between now and the time that you make your vows. So if you really do love one another, then the right thing to do is to commit yourselves to be faithful to one another in marriage. But while you are dating, one of the most loving things that you can do for your partner at this point in time well, is to help them remain in sexual purity. So that is one way that we can be walking in love in terms of obedience. Now, to walk in truth is to abide in the teaching about Christ. In verse 7, John reveals the practical reason for writing his letter. There were false teachers going around and John wanted to uh, give his readers a warning about them. So in verse 7 and 8, it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. The false teaching he mentions in verse 7 was that they do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They didn't believe that Jesus was God and they didn't believe that Jesus came as a man. So I've got two points on this. Firstly, um, we must acknowledge that Jesus is God. We don't place him at the same level as a great spiritual leader who gave us some profound teaching. Nor is he just a god or a demigod, uh, which, we, which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, as though, as though he was somehow inferior to God. No, Jesus is God, and our proper response to him is not just respect, but worship. Again, to deny, well, Jesus, to deny that Jesus is God is to deny our salvation. Because when Jesus came to die for our sins, it was actually God who came to die for our sins. Some might say that it's a ridiculous idea that God would come to die for us mere mortals. But that is the great wonder of um, our gospel message because it, was, it shows us how great God's love actually is for us. The Christian message is all about how God saves us because we can't do anything for ourselves. 
And secondly, we must acknowledge that Jesus is a man. He was flesh and blood. He ate and slept and walked this earth as man. And after he was resurrected, he continues to be a man. The heresy that denied Jesus' humanity uh, perhaps had its origin in Gnostic philosophy, uh, which teaches that anything associated with uh, the physical world is evil. If you believe in that, then the next logical step is that Jesus could, uh, couldn't have been of the flesh. Some believe that he appeared to have a body, uh, that he didn't have a body, but he was really a phantom or an apparition. Um, furthermore, suffering is seen to be just another part of the evil in this world. So, so Jesus couldn't have died on the cross either. And so that's why Christianity is different from other religions uh, that involve all these rituals and meditation uh, so that you're working to transcend your body, to transcend ourselves and escape our world. Um, Jesus entered into our, into our world as a man so that he could deal with our problem with sin in our world. But what this means is that Jesus... Um, so if Jesus didn't really die on the cross, then we are really denying the heart of the, our gospel message. And that's why John felt that this was such a serious heresy, that he had to quickly write a letter to send ahead of him. If we deny that Jesus was a man then Jesus had not taken away the punishment for our sins and we would still be dead in our sins. And the heart of the gospel message will be lost. So we're to uphold these two things, that Jesus is God and Jesus is man. Now look at how John responds to the false teachers who deny this. In verse 7 he calls them deceivers and antichrists. He tells them, his readers not to give them any hospitality. Don't even greet him. And in verse 11, he describes them as doing wicked works. There wasn't anything subtle here. And you might feel that it seems excessive. Uh, we should take note, though, that these were false teachers who were engaged in public teaching. So I think it's deliberate language in verse 7 when he says that they have gone out into the world. Because just as Christian missionaries uh, go out into the world on behalf of Christ, these uh, false teachers, these deceivers, had gone out into gone out into the world uh, on behalf of the devil, so to speak. So if the person at the pulpit or, some, or someone in position of authority is teaching heresy, whether it's Andrew or even the dean or the bishop or even me, then the right response is to remove us from that position of influence. Now, I recognise the irony of this, and I hope that at this point you don't come and grab me and drag me out the door. But when we, when we are passive in letting false teachers uh, continue to teach, you're actually participating in their evil. So that means that we need to know our Bibles for ourselves, so that we can be discerning and to know the difference. And you can't just sit there blindly and accept everything that you hear. It's not just up to the theologians. And that's why we encourage you to keep your Bibles open, as the preacher is speaking, so that you can check it up to see whether it is actually coming from the Bible. So test what you hear. Now he also tells us that we ourselves need to abide in the truth. In verse 9, the false teachers are described as having gone ahead. 
But these false teachers have gone ahead so far that they have abandoned the original teaching of the gospel. Perhaps the way we might describe uh, describe them today is to call them progressive thinkers, which is normally seen to be a good thing, but when we seek after new and fresh ideas, uh, it's like saying that the gospel is not enough for us. Now, we could compare it a little bit to shopping. I like to think there are two types of uh, shopping. There is the shopping for your necessities, and then there is the recreational type of shopping. When you shop for necessities, well, you go to get your groceries, your fruit and vegetables, the soap, the toilet paper, the things that aren't particularly interesting, and each week it's pretty much the same, but they're the things that you just need to keep your household running. And then there's the recreational type of shopping, where you shop for the things that you really want. This is the fun stuff. You go around to your favourite shops to look at the new season of clothes in the window. The women can get, uh, go and buy yet another pair of black shoes, and the guys can go get, and get the latest gadget. Um, these are the things that are always changing with every new trend, and whenever there's something new, well, we go and get it uh, just to keep up with everyone else. Now, Christianity is more like shopping for groceries. We always come back for the same things, Not that it's boring, it's a life-saving message, but the message that we've had since Jesus came came, remains the same with every age. And that's why we should always keep going back to the Bible, so that we abide in the truth as it was revealed by God himself. But sometimes we can be in danger of doing the recreational type of shopping, to go looking for the new and trendy ideas as if Jesus' work wasn't enough for us. I'll share with you an experience that a close friend went through um, in a previous church she was in. It started off in a fairly conservative church, um, but some years ago the pastor decided uh, that he needed to change the way they were doing things in order to help the church grow faster. He brought in all of the, late, uh, of the coolest preachers from Singaporean uh, megachurches. The cell groups were ordered to stop studying their Bibles. And from there, they followed the latest ideas on spirituality. One month, they spent, spent their time learning to pray in tongues. The next month, they, they learned how to map the spiritual hotspots of the city. The next month, they learned how to release themselves from their spiritual bondage. When we last visited that church, they didn't mention Jesus once during the entire meeting. But instead, they were talking about how God wanted to shower them with rich material blessings. The attitude was basically to adopt whatever worked, to do the things that would tickle people's ears and to jerk their emotions, but in the name of progress, they had abandoned the truth. Don't be charmed by these things. Christians are to abide in the truth by holding onto that which we have already got. And what Well, today we've been looking at what it, what it means to walk in love and in truth. Now, as a summary, basically it's a way of describing our fellowship with one another. It is a fellowship that is marked by love in truth. So rather than putting the truth in, aside in order to develop our fellowship, the truth should be the very thing that drives it. It's the common belief in the gospel that should bring us together as a church so that together we can celebrate it, because there's no one else who will celebrate this with us. 
And our fellowship should be expressed in love for one another. In a group like this, uh, there is bound to be conflict. That's just the nature of big groups. But the truth should drive us to put those differences aside and to forgive. And in that love, we should seek how we may encourage one another to continue abiding in the truth and to grow in obedience and love for God and for one another. It can be, as we challenge each other with what we've been learning in cell groups or in our own personal Bible readings, or it can be to help each other simply to hold on to the truth, especially when the challenges of life tempt us to give it up. So when was the last time you asked someone how their Christian walk was going? Or the last time you prayed with someone uh, from church or your, or your soul group? So brothers and sisters, let us strive to continue our fellowship in love and truth. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you have shown your love to us that you sent Jesus to die for us, even though we were sinful, even though we rebelled against you. Father, we thank you that you remained faithful to us. And Father, we pray that we ourselves may be loving and that this love would be driven by the truth that we have. Father, we pray that you would help us to hold onto the truth, that we wouldn't be tempted by the things around in our world. But Father, we pray that we will remain faithful to you and to grow in our love for one another. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.